just before we move into the uh, text, and this verse 11 is really where I want to spend our time this morning, and I understand that I have a somewhat disparate group of scriptures there. I promise you we'll bring that back around to uh, to mean something in, in cohesion, at least I hope. You know, I don't title my sermons often, but this one does have a title. And the title is, uh, What Do You Give the One Who Has Everything? Literally. Uh, what do you give the one who has created the heavens and the earth? How do you show appreciation? How do you demonstrate that in a way? And uh, my wife comes to me and says, what do you want for Christmas? And I say, I've got everything. You know, how, more, how more blessed can I be to have my daughter and my son-in-law and my two grandchildren and my incredible wife? How, how blessed can I be? to have been raised in a Christian family, to have uh, the Word, to be in a church that's, that's preached the Word for the years that I've been a part, and uh, I just, you know, I'm astounded at how good God is to me. And then you start putting all of the spiritual things in there, which are the, the, uh, the summum bonum of everything, and you're just transported. What do you do? And we're in a similar position um, with God, but that brings us to understanding things from a worldview that is far transcendent to our own. Uh, The worldview which sees all of nature as a mere cosmic accident is dreadfully bankrupt. Uh, It leaves us in in a horrible position. Uh, Contrary to the message of the Bible, if you buy into this idea that everything just sprang into existence on its own, then in truth, life has no meaning. There's no reason for us to be. Now, uh, I, I like one concept in the theory of evolution, and that is, and you can use this on your friends who want to spring evolution on you because there's a, an inherent contradiction in their own thinking, and that is, if you remember those verses we read in Genesis, that originally God gave all the green plants of the earth for us to eat, and we have evolved nicely, and that's why we are meat eaters. And so if anybody argues against evolution, just tell, well, we're for evolution, tell them, yes, and part of my evolution is that I become a meat eater. But uh, there's, there's this worldview that there was just nothing, and then there was something, for no reason, came out of nowhere, had no cause, and so you and me, we just are. And we come, and we go, we're born, we live, given our circumstances in life, more or less in some comfort or discomfort or a mixture of both, and then we die, end of story. If that's your worldview, you are in terrible trouble. Because the truth is, you have nothing to live for. That's why the famous existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre said, the only question man has is, how should I commit suicide? There's no reason to live. Because life has no inherent meaning. And even as Christians... Some of us can fall into the gray cast that this world-type thinking can 
impose on us over time. We see it on the news. We see it everywhere else. And, and even though we claim to understand all of life differently, nevertheless, there can be something boiling beneath the surface, especially when you're going through trial or difficulty. And you say to yourself, why all this? What, what good is it? What's it all about? But the attitude, the feeling of it can invade even the Christian and still inform us almost unconsciously. The three texts that we had read for us today absolutely, categorically deny that way of thinking. They don't permit it. We start in Genesis with this incredible description of his creative power where he speaks into existence everything that is, and we come to Revelation chapter 4, and here we are, one of the, there's 12 hymns in the book of Revelation. One day I'll, I'll do a series on that, I hope. But there are 12 separate hymns in the book of Revelation, and this is one of those hymns. Uh, first, the angels sing, and then the four and twenty elders fall down before the throne of God, and look at what it is that they give him glory for. They express that he's worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because he created everything. And by your will, they existed and were created. Uh, If you've got a King James, in fact, the word that's used there for will is the word pleasure. And there's a lot of truth in that, although the word probably is better translated will here. Nevertheless, the truth is that nothing exists except what has pleased God to bring into existence. It's an amazing statement. Now, I want to point three things out about this verse before we move too far down the road. The first is this worthiness of our Lord and God is to receive glory and honor and power. He's worthy. Sorry about that. That should be over the word glory. He's worthy because he is glorious in what he has made. When you look at creation, all of creation, you see that God is eminently worthy. His genius is displayed in creation. And if I might say, and I'm going to jump ahead a little bit for myself here, his genius in creating each one of you is displayed in creation. He's worthy because of what he has made. You look at the stars, you look at the universe, you look at this world, you look at everything that's in it, and you say, how wonderful is the one who made this. He's awesome. And honor. He's honorable for having made it because it's a good creation. Notice, after every place in Genesis, he looked on what he did and it was good. And then when he crowns his creation with making man and woman, he says it's very good. He's to be honored because what he has done is honorable. And he's made a good creation and to receive power. Because he had the power to make it. So all of this, this wonder, this worthiness is wrapped up in his creativeness, in the, in the power and in the honor and the uprightness that he did that. Obviously, he has more power than I do to make circles land where they're supposed to on the screen. 
All of that by your will. Because he simply wanted it to be. Now, I think we lose sight of this. We look at creation and we understand it's fallen. We understand that there was rebellion in the garden and that so much has been corrupted. But don't forget, he made it all originally. And he's worthy of honor for it. And the only reason these things exist is because he desired it. So I have just a couple of points that I'm going to make as we work through this. But, but remember what Psalm 139 says. Um, we, we have at times a false sense of, of uh, humility. Resting, I think, the words of John the Baptist out of their proper context. Where John says, I must decrease and he must increase. He isn't saying, I have to make a little of myself so that he looks good. He's saying my ministry has to pass off the scene so that his ministry can take over. But God doesn't have to be made greater by making us smaller. He is made greater when we simply see him for who and what he is. And it's a false spirituality that runs around always saying the only way I can glorify God is to say how horrible I am. According to this, as David says, I praise God because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. It's extraordinary what he's made. And this makes him great. It doesn't make me great. I'm the created. But, boy, it sure speaks well for the creator. I think we can lose sight of this. I think we can put it on the back burner and forget that that God is not stuck with any creature Because no creature came to be and no creature remains in existence except his desire to bring it about and sustain it. And that includes you. That's true whether you're a Christian here today or not. You have existence because God decided it would be more pleasurable for him in his universe to have you than not. And he had the decision. He didn't have to make you. All exists, you exist, because it gives God pleasure to have you in his universe rather than not. And when I get to Sarah's house tomorrow morning for breakfast, which they're going to make for me, or on on, uh, Christmas morning, because that's what they're supposed to do, um, I'm going to revel in what they make for me, and I'm going to want my gifts. I'm going to want to enjoy them. I'm really going to want them to enjoy the ones I got for them. But there is this this innate pleasure in giving and receiving that's created in us, and it's demonstrated for us from the very get-go. God creates, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. And he didn't get stuck with you. As part of his creation. Now, some parents, some of you may feel like you got stuck with your kids. Some kids, you may feel like you got stuck with your parents. But it isn't so in God's universe. He didn't get stuck with anybody. He made us. He didn't have to make you, but you are a glorious creation. And God is honored in your existence. It's extraordinary. 
And you are a demonstration of his unimaginable infinite power. Because he had the power not to make you, and he did. And now, I understand that for the supremely prideful and sinful, I suppose you might shrug your shoulders and say, well, of course, look at me. Who wouldn't want me? But there was a time when you weren't. And you only are... See, God is not driven by what we are to love us. He loves us by making us what we are. Now, if it were the other way around, if we made ourselves, it would be supremely prideful to say that God takes pleasure in us. But because he didn't, we didn't make ourselves because he made us. There's a rightful place where we come to understand his glory in it. When we contemplate that we were made and had no hand in making ourselves, then it's clear we have no room for pride in self, even though we can say with the psalmist. And I wonder how many of us here can honestly say, as Christians, can honestly sit back and revel in the thought that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Do you think that about yourself? I think most of us don't. We're afraid to go there. We're afraid somehow pride will grow up and God will be diminished, but he, we are fearfully and wonderfully made by his hand. So when we contemplate that, it's clear we have no room for pride, but only awe at the creator. But as I said, how truth be told, how many of us actually feel that way? First, about ourselves, and then secondly, about others. I mean, that's, that's the deal. It was Mark Twain who said... That God created man in his own image, and man has been returning the favor ever since. That's probably true. We're constantly trying to shape God in our image. We, we are idol factories, Calvin said. We want to make God the way we want him to be. But how many of us really stop and say, you know what? God made me. He's happy with that. It pleased him to make me. And... It made him happy to make my husband. Made him happy to make my wife. Made him happy to make my kids. Made him happy, kids, to make your parents. Do we really think that way? Do we imagine that? Do we let our minds go there? Now, when I think of baby hedgehogs, I think, they are so cute. How can't you love them? Right? They are just absolutely adorable. You look at these little faces and you say, man, that is, God is so awesome. Look at this little guy. It's it's just profound, isn't it? I, I see these, I look at these things, and I think, who wouldn't love them? They are just so cute. And then I see this guy, and I say... Good night. What was going on? Or, or this? It's, it's, a little, it's a little tough, isn't it? But the same creative hand made all of those. You, you look at the person around you, and how often is the hedgehog baby saying, you know what, the anglerfish ought to look more like me. How often is 
someone in the church saying to another person in the church, you really ought to look a lot more like me. And not giving God the birth of his creative hand. Which he's done. We're unhappy with how he's made us. And we're even more unhappy with how he's made the people around us. You see this creature? And you see, wow, God's beauty, God's genius. Look at his, look at the way that he makes these things. Isn't that astounding? These birds with, with their hollow bones and the way that they fly. But they don't have fur like the pleasant looking monkey we just saw, do they? Now, how about that incredible tiger with all of its power and all of its, its energy and its beauty? And this fish, it, it, it looks surreal, doesn't it? It doesn't even look like it's, like it's, like it's a natural thing, like something that, that you'd see in a movie, not reality, but it's, it's reality. Um, and then there's these guys. Yeah, and then there's... And there's this. You say, all right, I'm not sure that the same mind could have made all of these. Right? I mean, just too weird. I mean, I like to eat chicken, but I do not like to look at chicken, not under these circumstances. And chicken shouldn't dance, especially when they're naked. It's just, it's unnatural. How about this guy? Or this one. Or this. Or this. Or these. (laughs) Have you picked out the one you want to be like yet? Isn't that a handsome man? He thinks he is. He's got that, hey, look at me. Not so handsome. Hmm. And God made bugs too. And he made that. The same mind, the same heart, produced these extraordinary specimens. The one that's present and the one that's leaving. And he made the big one to eat the little one. And him. They're beautiful. Just extraordinary. All of these, by the way, I need to give credit. I took these from a book by Tim Flash, a recent book that he just turned out called More Than Human. So I, I don't want to do that. At first, I thought that this was Alfred Hitchcock. And then I, I took a closer look and realized, no, that's... That's a picture of me. Um, when I shave the beard off, it's, it's astounding. That's Tim Flash's book, just so you've, you've got it. It has pleased God to make us. It has pleased Him to make the people around you. Don't be the one who takes the beautiful little angelfish and tries to say, you need to be more like the tiger. It's not true. It's not true. 
It's a way of telling God that he was wrong. Wrong when he made you and wrong when he made the people around you. But we're told in in, uh, Revelation 4, he's worthy to be praised because of what he's made. He's done well. I'm reminded of the Old Testament when Moses is arguing with God about going to, to minister and to free the children of Israel. And he says, you know, I can't, I can't speak very well. We're told in Hebrews that he was a man of words. Uh, it didn't mean that he, couldn't, he wasn't eloquent in the natural sense, but he no longer spoke his native tongue. He was raised in the Egyptian court, and he would fumble in talking to God's people. And God eventually said, oh, well, I'll bring you Aaron to go with you. But in the process, he said, who makes the blind? Who makes the deaf? I do. We say, oh, defect. And he says, no, difference. Difference from my glory. To show the extraordinary, amazing, limitless creativity. And to give each one of us the things we wrestle with that are most aimed at helping us have our character conformed to the image of Christ. Not helping you conform your neighbor to the image of Christ. Helping each one of us. As varied as these creatures are, this is how we are varied among ourselves, but we've never yet either delighted in how God made us each personally nor in how he has made others, and in fact, our worship has been defective as a result. Because we're always trying to make all the creatures come out the same the way we like them. We don't want the bug to be a bug. We don't want the armadillo to be the armadillo. We want him to be like us. But he's worthy because of his creativity, because of his power and his grace. So you exist, I exist, because it gave God pleasure that we would rather than not. My second point is that in redemption... The glory of our original creation, its loss in the fall, and its recovery in Christ sparks an even higher delight for us in the heart of our God. Now this is a divine mystery. This is so hard to to grasp and so easy to twist out of where it belongs. The tragedy of the fall actually enhances the joy of God in our recovery to him. Paul wrestled with this concept in Romans because it's so mis- easily misunderstood that people said, well, if, if God's forgiving, if, if it's the wonder of God's grace that's demonstrated in forgiving me, shouldn't we sin more so that grace can abound? And he says, no, of course not. That's a perverse way of looking at it. But he had just finished making the point, God's grace does abound where we sin. So there's a balance that needs to be struck there. But I heard an illustration on this just a short time ago from Tim Keller that I thought was so appropriate. He was talking about, he was lecturing actually at MIT on the problem of evil in the world. And he talked about having a dream one night. Uh, one of those really vivid, vivid, vivid dreams that seem so real that when you're in it, you can't, you can't determine 
uh, whether or not it is a dream. And in that dream, his entire family had been murdered. His wife, his children, he had walked into the house and here was this terrible scene where there was just gore and blood everywhere and everyone had been murdered. And feeling the oppression and the brokenness and the horror of that. And he said, I woke up in the morning and everything was okay. They were there. And he said, now I loved my family before I had that dream. But the next morning, I had a newfound joy where I reveled in them in a way I don't think I ever had. And he latched onto that as a way of describing God's joy in reclaiming sinners from the fall. Oh, he loved us when he made us. He made us skillfully and wonderfully and fearfully. And we fell But there is a joy in him in redeeming lost sinners that is unspeakable on human terms. Oh, how he loves to redeem the lost. And what joy it gives him when he considers not only what it took, but what he has rescued us from. Now, That leads us to the next passage. And that is where it kind of comes back to the Christmas theme just a bit. This is why he sent Christ was to redeem us. And there is this higher delight in him for having redeemed us from the fall. But it reminds us then, what did you give the man who has everything? Well, God tells you that he will give himself something. He couches it in these short portion of of Ephesians. He tells us that Christ has redeemed the church and sanctified her with his blood, set her apart and cleansed her so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. What does God delight in giving himself above everything? Redeemed sinners. Redeemed sinners. Is that you today? I want you to know how much he loves giving you to himself. How he delights in you. How he he puts the whole track of redemptive history on its path For this purpose, that at the consummation of the ages, he may say, I have received my bride. And Christian, you're part of that. This, to me, is so amazing and so beyond understanding that I I know I struggle just even getting the words out having witnessed the tragedy of our rebellion and the fall and all of its miserable consequences, in the end, because of redeeming grace, it only serves to enhance his joy at being reunited at last in the great celebration that yet awaits us. This alone, this one thing, he reserves for himself and wishes to present himself 
at the consummation of the ages, redeemed sinners as his bride. That's his Christmas. And it was expensive. It cost him his son. In Jesus, it cost him his life, his death, his burial, his suffering, all that he suffered on this earth to purchase us so that he might present us to himself, so that he might say, this is what I want. I've created everything that exists, but I've gone the extra mile because this is what I want ultimately is you. Now, there is nothing that answers the aching need of the human heart more than this. If there's one thing deep down inside of each one of us that aches, it is that we might be supremely desired by someone we find desirable. And this is how he does it. He says, guess what? I am the supremely desired one, and I supremely desire you. Now, if you're not a Christian here today, you can know the wonder of his having created you. You can know the awe and the splendor of knowing that you came from the hand of the infinite, good, glorious, honorable, infinitely powerful God but you will never know him like this. And that's why we preach the gospel. That you might forsake all other things and flee to him. Oh, how he loves. Oh, how he has pursued. How he has seen to it you're here once again to hear the message that God justifies sinners and saves lost people and rejoices over us in our redemption in ways that we cannot even begin to imagine now. And that the day is fast approaching when at the end of the age he will say, I receive mine, what I want most of all, these that I have loved and purchased Oh, that you would cast yourself on Christ today, that you would acknowledge your sin and your separation from him, your rebellion against him. And here as he calls to you and says, come to me, that I might wash you and sanctify you and put away every blot every blemish. Notice again in Ephesians, he doesn't say that the bride has cleaned herself up. It's that he has washed and cleansed us with his blood. And he calls to you. Christian, here is your God telling you that you exist because it made him happy to make you. And it will make him supremely joyous on that day when at last you're joined together never to part and the one you're trying to fix the other Christian who you're still trying to get in order he created them too 
And he made, it made him happy to make them. Even though they don't look like you and act like you. And maybe you're the beautiful fish and maybe you're the frog with the other frog in its mouth. I don't know. But I know God made you and he delights in you. And Christian, you are his Christmas gift on that final day. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for things like this, that if they were not in your Bible, we would tremble to even try to imagine them. I don't get how it is you love us this way. I don't understand the attractiveness that you seem to find in us. But you do. You made us in your image. You made us to bear the sweetness of what it looks like to behold the living God. And you will yet complete that work in us. And we stand amazed. All we can do is say thank you. And we bless your holy name for your loving kindness to us and your sweetness and the amazing grace that is found in Jesus Christ. Oh, may the whole world come to know so that more and more will glorify you in the wonder of your love. Bless your people in the knowledge of your grace today and save the lost to your glory today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I ask you all to stand.
Praise God from whom 